So this is on tragedy. This is another form. Obviously, in the real world, a tragedy is an event that causes great suffering, destruction, and distress. An accident, a crime, a natural catastrophe. In theater and film storytelling stories, it's a story with a tragic event. It usually has the downfall of the central character or what we call the unhappy ending. Things do not end well. Things uh, fall apart, in other words, in tragedy. In comedies, they are restored. In tragedies, they fall apart. Um, there uh, are four kinds of tragedy as identified by Aristotle, just to invoke Aristotle again, although I don't always like to, but um, but I will say that as somebody who was thinking about it and theorizing about it before really anybody else, uh, useful to bear in mind. So there are four distinct kinds of tragedy. There's the, the tragedy of suffering, the tragedy of character, the tragedy of spectacle, and the tragedy of, uh, it's a difficult one, sort of the conflict of fate, fate and will, um, uh, in opposition with each other. Um, the tragedy of suffering, the tragedy of character, the tragedy of spectacle tend to oscillate uh, between them. But they're worth uh, bearing in mind. So the in Aristotle, the there's the anago, I never can say this right, anagorisis, uh, which is the recognition, <laughs> thank you, the recognition by means of signs or marks, right? So this is when um, uh, Odysseus's nurse recognizes him by virtue of a scar. Um, that's, you know, from Aristotle's perspective, sort of the least interesting way of thinking about uh, initiating a tragedy. It's a contrivance by an author, right? So um, that's why sometimes we think, oh, that's been put upon by a writer or a filmmaker. It's because it's not earned, right? So we talk about the idea of something being earned is because it's actually uh, not contrived, right? So the, or it doesn't feel contrived. Um, the third is a recognition property by memory. Uh, and the fourth type of recognition has to do with deductive reasoning. What happens in Oedipus, for example, Oedipus starts to deduce the tragedy that they're in uh, and then makes a decision about that. Tragedy is a genre of story in which a hero is brought down by their flaws, right? usually ordinary flaws like greed or overambition or excessive love or honor or loyalty. Um, and there's usually 
a, you know, a protagonist, sometimes a single protagonist, sometimes an ensemble protagonist, that is being kind of examined by the, by the story. Um, and I think in, in some tragedies, it's the conflict between not just a protagonist's flaws or a central figure or an ensemble figure's flaws that bring them down, but the fact that they're inside a web, a larger web of, um, in the world that's causing that to happen. And we're seeing that figure or a group of figures through that web. Uh, so it's another way of thinking about tragedy, which I think sometimes doesn't get talked about all that often. So examples of tragedies uh, that are very, very familiar to us all, to some extent, is Romeo and Juliet. I mean, that's classic. We get it, right? So Titanic, <laughs> Hamlet, Frankenstein, Hunger Games. Hunger Games, absolutely a tragedy. Uh, Great Gatsby is a tragedy, right? It's the fall of, of the people in that story, the central figures in that story. Uh, tragedy doesn't always mean death, right? So I think that sometimes people equate uh, this form with, oh, those are stories that end where people die. Um, sometimes they do. Sometimes this, um, tragedies are centered around a great loss, um, but not always. Um, uh, Magnolia, Philip uh, P.T. Anderson's film, which is a movie I've been thinking about a lot lately, um, is definitely a tragedy. And uh, but I think you couldn't point to one great act of loss in that film, although there are many losses in that film uh, that determine that this is going to be a tragic tale. It's sort of a cruise. Um, in Hamlet, you know, almost everyone dies. <laughs> that is tragic. But the greater tragedy in Hamlet is actually the corrupt world that has made this happen. And the fact that Hamlet himself as a character ultimately, it's complicated, but ultimately perhaps doesn't have the tools for all his brilliance to truly navigate the world that he's in or to even separate himself from the world that he's in. He's so caught in grief and in revenge, the revenge that comes out of that grief to avenge his father's death, that he actually is blinded, right? He's kind of blind to other things, blind to the fact that he could actually leave. And so what overtakes Hamlet and Hamlet, among many things, is that he can't escape his grief, that he's locked in it. Uh, and he starts to tear at himself and inside himself and at the people around him to the point where he kind of, you know, Hamlet's very interesting because it's a character that self-destroys as much as he's sort of destroying other people and as the world is destroying him, uh, he also self-destructs. Um, and so that becomes an incredibly tragic 
uh, story in a tragic form. And he, he has no means of restoration. He doesn't know even, can't even begin to restore, can't even begin to reform. Uh, fascinating. Again, I've been thinking about Hamlet a lot, so it's come to mind, but... Um, Calamities, afflictions, adversities, catastrophes, grief, all related to tragedy. Um, Oedipus, big tragedy. Uh, Medea, Oresteia, Odyssey, the Bacchae. So many that have been written. There's also something called the romantic tragedy. Uh, and maybe Romeo and Juliet falls into this. But it's usually a story where sometimes it mixes comedy and tragedy. And I'm thinking of maybe the later plays of Shakespeare's for a moment. Um, the what we call the romances. Winter's Tale, Cymbeline, uh, Pericles. Uh, they're tragedies, but they have an element. They mix up, they mix it. They, it's mixed with comedy. So, so you have sort of the romantic tragedy. What are the elements of tragedy? Plot, obviously characters. Verbal expressive. Expression. Now, how is it told? What are the words used to tell it? Thought. Song. Composition. And spectacle. This, um, curiously, uh, to invoke Aristotle again for a second, I won't harp on Aristotle, but again, only because uh, I think the first codification of some of these ideas, some of these concepts, but or an attempt to codify, I should say. What we forget is that Aristotle was looking at tragedy. <laughs> um, the tragedies that he saw, so he saw Sophocles' work and at Aeschylus, and so I think that it was an attempt to figure out what were these writers doing. Oh, they use plot. They have characters. They have right. So these are the elements that form tragedy. They also form comedy, and I, and I think that it's worth remembering that these things go together. Um, so tragedies, I guess the flaw question, I guess I'll bring that up. So the idea of a fate or tragic flaw, a moral weakness, Sometimes it will be part of a tragedy, a psychological maladjustment, social pressure. Those are all things that can contribute to a tragedy. Uh, time immemorial, we've been told that the aim of tragedy is to bring about catharsis in the spectator, to arouse in them sensations of pity and fear, to purge them of these emotions so they can leave the theater being cleansed and uplifted with a heightened understanding of the ways of the world and the gods, and the underworld, <laughs> and so forth. So the idea of catharsis, you know, that so much pity and fear is aroused 
that we that we're purged into a cleansed space. Um, I want to invoke Sarah Kane for a second, um, who is a playwright who died way too young um, and left behind a short body of work, um, who was devoted to writing tragedy, uh, uh, contemporary, um, I think very close to Aeschylus and Sophocles in her mode, in her modes, uh, consciously so. She was a very smart writer. One of her plays is called Cleansed, uh, deliberately as a nod to the idea that through going through sensations of pity and fear aroused by the audience that will be purged of something. We'll come away, we'll come out of it, through it, cleansed, purified. And the ancient ritualistic traditions of being purified by seeing the tragedy, by coming face to face with something, reckoning with it, recognizing it as an audience, spectator, we're moved through something, an experience, tragic experience, to be able to be, to have that feeling of catharsis, but also to go to this other place of purification. And I think this idea of cleansing of the spirit, uh, a kind of not staying in the arousal of pity and fear, but actually moving past it through it, through it, and past it to another place. Um, a place of enlightenment, maybe. Better understanding of the world, a moral reckoning with the world. Um, it's a space that I think, that often I think what happens with tragedy when we think of it today, as in terms of dramatic writing, often what happens is that... Um, there's a tendency, I think, in readers and audiences to stay wrapped in the arousal of sensations of pity and fear and not move through, through and toward catharsis, through and toward cleansing, through and toward moral reckoning. And it's, you know, uh, those are harder steps to take. And some writers uh, and makers of art um, make a decision around that in terms of saying, look, I think maybe the world doesn't know how to reckon, doesn't know how to be enlightened, doesn't know how to be cleansed, purified. Purified in the sense of not forgetting, but actually through reckoning, through a moral reckoning, going to a place that is more elevated, more, um, yeah, I think the word enlightenment comes to mind and uh, in the sense of what a spectator feels. Like when, when I see Medea, for example, 
or Medea, depending on who you're talking to. Like, it's horrifying what happens in that story. But coming out the other end of that story, there is a feeling, I think, if it's, if it's you know, if the production is sort of meeting, meeting that text by Euripides, adapted by many writers, but meeting that text head on, you're not staying in that place of like, oh, I'm horrified. <laughs> but you're like, I'm horrified and it makes me think about why this happens in the world and why, right? You sort of go to this next level, which then hopefully leads the spectator, audience, viewer, reader to a place of more profound understanding about the world. Uh, and maybe, I don't want to use the word lesson, but maybe lessons around how can we live better, right? I think that's one of the things that tragedy does do. How can we live better? How can we not stay in, tra in the tragic mode? But we have to reckon with the tragic mode first, which I think is really important. Um, yes, tragedy is a way to obviously expand your experience of life. It also allows you to test yourself. Um, Uh, the you know watching sort of a good person fall from from their good fortune to bad fortune through no fault of their own um, is you know a tried and true thing. Um, I'm going to quote from Sarah Gokala for a second. Sarah's a she's so terrific. She's a playwright and scholar, uh, and she had this to say about tragedy, so I think I'll bring it up. What do we mean when we say that something is tragic or a tragedy? Take a moment and think about the last time you used the word. Was it to describe something that had happened to someone that was sad, shocking, or unfair? The disappearance of a child the death of a famous person by accidental means? Was it to describe a film or TV program in which things end unhappily for the characters? Or perhaps it was just to say that something was really bad. You might describe all these things as tragic in everyday life, but technically none of them are. I'm just quoting Sarah, so bear with me. Tragedy is a specific theatrical genre. Its rules were first and most famously outlined by Aristotle in the Poetics, written around 3030, sorry, 330, 3030, 330 BC, a long time ago. Uh, in the Poetics, Aristotle outlines the features of a well-written tragedy. He mentions that tragedy has six parts, plot, said this before, but I'll say it again, plot, character, diction, reasoning, so that's thought, spectacle, and lyric poetry. The most important of these to, to Aristotle were plot and character. Plot is the most important part of tragedy, more important than character, so said Aristotle. 
Tragedy is an imitation of life and of actions, not of people. Imitation of life and actions, not of people. Aristotle divides the dramatic narrative into two parts, story and plot. Story is the raw material from which a plot is made. Greek tragedies draw their plots from much longer Greek myths. The plot is the smaller part of the larger story that the tragic playwright decides to tell. When making a plot, Aristotle says, the playwright selects a set of events from a larger story and organizes them into a logical order, a unified action. So plot is like what happens in the play or film. Story is the larger, right? The whole story. Love it. A unified action is a sequence of events that tells a single and clear narrative. Each event in the plot must cause the event that comes next. To say that the king died and that the queen died is not a unified action. The king's death does not necessarily cause the queen's death. To say that the king died and that the queen died of grief is a unified action because the king's death is clearly identified as the cause of the queen's death. To do this produces a unity of action. In the plot of a well-written tragedy, there should be a moment of reversal. This is a moment in which the tragic hero or heroine has a drastic change of fortune. They move from good fortune to bad fortune. For example, in Oedipus Rex, Oedipus Tyrannus, Sophocles' play, this happens when Oedipus, who is searching for his father's murderer, realizes he is the murderer himself. Many people say that Aristotle invented three unities, the unity of action, the unity of time, and the unity of place. In the Poetics, Aristotle only explicitly refers to the unity of action. The unities of time and place were invented much later on in the Renaissance. In fact, they are used primarily in the work of French neoclassical playwrights, such as Racine, R-A-C-I-N-E, who also wrote tragedies based on classical mythology. The unity of time states that the action of a play must not last longer than a single day. The unity of place states that the action of a play must all take place in the same location, and there cannot be any set changes. Character is the second most important part of tragedy. Aristotle outlines four rules about character. Tragic characters must be good. This means that they have the ability to make good choices about their actions. Tragic characters must be portrayed appropriately. For example, if they're a king, they must behave as you might expect a king to behave. So, tragic characters should be like us in some way, but better. They are like portraits of people. They reflect the person as they are, but they accentuate the person's best qualities. Tragic characters should be consistent in their behavior. If they begin behaving in one way, they can't suddenly start behaving in a completely different way. I would say that over time, I'm departing from Sarah's text at the moment, I'm interpolating, so I would say that over time, a lot of these sort of rules have shifted and changed. But it's good to look at sort of some of the core tenets, because it allows us to see what other writers 
And theorists have, you know, since since 330 BC, <laughs> have been thinking and doing and thinking about tragedy. Aristotle says one other very important thing about tragic heroes and heroines. He says that they must have a fatal flaw. The Greek word is hamarsha. This flaw doesn't make them a bad person, but it is the thing that will cause their fall from good fortune to bad fortune. Aristotle states that a well-written tragedy produces catharsis. It produces a feeling of pity and fear in the audience watching it. The audience should feel pity for the tragic hero, a good person who falls from good fortune to bad through no fault of their own. The audience should also feel fear as they recognize that the tragic hero is a person like them. So therefore they too could suffer the same terrible fate. Aristotle sees catharsis as having a positive effect on the audience. It helps the audience to purge themselves of dangerous flaws by recognizing the hero's flaw in themselves. And through this moment of recognition, they can purge themselves of this flaw, of this flaw to become better people. More recent theater practitioners, such as the Argentine theater director, Augusto Boal, though he's actually Brazilian, uh, have argued that Aristotle's catharsis has a negative effect on the audience. Boal says that catharsis is a tool that governments use to suppress their citizens. Through making people afraid of the consequences of committing certain actions, a government can effectively control people's behavior. It's an interesting point that Sarah makes. So this Sarah wrote this essay on tragedy in 2012. Uh, uh, Sarah Gokala. Um, other thoughts on tragedy that I will give you? Uh, I think the tragedy also has with it um, this feeling of weight, uh, stories that have sort of weight attached to them. Um, it's a it's a really important form historically. Uh, the tradition of tragedy has been multiple and discontinuous, but it still uh, has great effect. the The word, the origins come do come from ancient Greece, twenty five hundred years ago. Uh, so it's worth acknowledging that. And there are articulations, of course, in Shakespeare, Racine, Schiller, Ibsen, Strindberg, Beckett, Heiner Mueller and more. Great many philosophers have also um, dedicated themselves to analyzing the meaning of tragedy uh, from a dramatic standpoint. Plato, Voltaire, Hegel, Schopenhauer, Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, Freud, Lacan, Camus, Deleuze. Uh, Simon Critchley wrote a book last year called uh, On Tragedy, Tragedy and What Makes Us. Uh, beautiful book, actually, on theater and tragedy, speculating on the genre. Uh, in the wake of Aristotle, 
sort of identifying and articulating how tragedy works in theater and dramatic writing and using dramatic uh, genre distinctions, whether it's the scale of poetry, where tragic divides against epic and lyric, the scale of drama, where tragedy is opposed to comedy. In the modern era, tragedy has also been defined against drama, melodrama, the tragic comic and epic theater becomes sort of one route, right? So drama in the narrow sense cuts across the traditional division between comedy and tragedy in an anti or a genetic uh, demarcation. Maybe from the mid 19th century onwards, we start to kind of not have such strict boundaries. Brecht and Boal define their epic theater projects uh, against models of tragedy, so against tragedy, uh, rebelling against it. Um, the etymology of the word uh, comes from different, has some different things to it. So in the classical Greek, it comes from tragos, which is a he-goat, uh, goat song. So you'll often hear about the goat song. Drama as goat song. Uh, scholars suspect that this may be traced to a time when a goat was either the prize in the competition uh, or that uh, there was a ritual animal sacrifice uh, before the theatrical event. And so that the song, so the play, play, the drama, the song, was sort of acknowledging this sacrifice, which I think is a useful way of thinking about drama in general. I often talk about, when I'm talking about drama, which is to talk about that it's built on an altar of sacrifice, uh, and that that sort of is where the, the play sort of begins. Uh, and I often mention this in terms of the living room drama. So the living room drama with the couch in the middle, you know, <laughs> so that the couch really is a replacement of the altar uh, or the kitchen table. If you look at the kitchen sink drama tradition, the kitchen table is a replacement of that altar sacrifice. It's turned in a different way, uh, but it's serving a similar function. The drama functions song of the play revolves around the sacrificial uh, emblem. The original, there are other ways in the etymology of the word tragedy that come, that say that it comes from trigodia and ode. So <clears throat> trigodia, <clears throat> excuse me, being grape harvest, because a lot of these plays sort of happen during the grape harvest. Goat song, grape harvest, <laughs> take your pick. Um, but there's obviously an act of celebration and event uh, attached to the idea of drama to begin with. Uh, Aristotle provided the earliest surviving explanation for the origin of the form, obviously. So, um, and we know this. Uh, Right, I'm just thinking through this for a second. 
So in Roman times, we have tragedies as well. Seneca, uh, most famous for his version of Phaedra. Uh, and Octavia, which is a Seneca play that's based on a Roman subject and not a Greek subject. Uh, Seneca reworked, so the act of adaptation was alive and well <laughs> back in Seneca's days. So Seneca reworked uh, all three of the plays by uh, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides. And uh, sort of explored more of the ideas of revenge and the occult and the supernatural, suicide, blood, and gore in his place. Seneca's work doesn't get done very often anymore. It's sort of interesting. Major writer from the Roman Empire um, and definitely someone that, that probably should be revived, I think. Because uh, it's, worth, it's worth thinking about. Um, sort of thinking through this for a second. Uh, Lope de Vega, Tiriso de Molina, Calderón de la Barca, all wrote tragedies um, that were then uh, adapted for the, for the stage in France during the Renaissance period. In the neoclassical period, you have uh, Pierre Corneille with his version of Medea, also Lycid, probably the most popular and successful writer in France of tragedies. Um, his, uh, his plays were closer to tragic comedies, so that's what I was saying earlier about how tragedy started to kind of break apart a little bit and start to meld other elements. In fact, in Pierre Corneille's tragic works, most of them end, quote, happily, most of them end kind of in a restorative space, um, uh, which, is, which is interesting in terms of the evolution of the genre. Although that I would say that a lot of uh, people still equate tragedy with um, the, the quote, unhappy ending uh, from a dramatic perspective. But in the neoclassical period, there was this move in tragedy that occurred um, there's also like the idea of the bourgeois tragedy that happened in Germany, uh, and in England, uh, in the 1700s, 18th century in Europe, in general, you start to have stories about the bourgeoisie, uh, ordinary citizens at the center of the story, and you start to have the move into tragic work that explores, uh, not just kings and queens and the gods and myth, mythic figures, uh, but uh, characters from everyday life. Um, and that's like the, the hugest shift, if you look at the history of tragedy and its evolution as a form, is that that becomes the biggest bone of contention, in other words, that instead of kings and queens and people in power, suddenly there are stories around ordinary citizens living their lives, uh, death of a salesman, right? So Arthur Miller, in fact, he wrote a famous essay called Tragedy in the Common Man. So Arthur Miller talks about tragedy 
that the common man suffers tragedy just as much as Oedipus the king, Oedipus Tyrannos, um, and that domestic tragedies can happen, right? And so that mode, I think, is still very prevalent today uh, in writing. Um, Howard Barker, I'm going to mention Howard Barker uh, because he's worth, if you don't know his work, worth thinking about. He's a a British playwright, um, very controversial, I think, British playwright for many reasons. Uh, uh, on the one hand, considered still uh, one of the greatest thinkers about theater uh, of the certainly of the twenty first of the twentieth century, uh, but also somebody who. Uh, basically rejected theater, uh, had his own theater company called the Wrestling School, was, uh, and then was defunded by the Arts Council of England. And uh, then he stopped, he's kind of stopped writing. Uh, but suffice to say, I think, seek out Howard Barker, fascinating figure. And one of the reasons I bring him up is because in contemporary theater, he's one of the people that's, that, that argued the most for the rebirth of tragedy as a form. A rebirth of tragedy as a, as a form hearkening back to Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, and even Seneca. Uh, and he wrote a book called Arguments for a Theater, which I think still is essential reading. Uh, arguments for a theater, if you don't know it. Um, he coins the term the theater of catastrophe. Um, and really is just a, a way of thinking. He's going back to that idea of catharsis. Sort of fascinating with Barker because what he does, he says, when you witness a tragedy as a spectator, you're equipped against lies. You gain the moral reckoning is around the lies of the world. And that you have the tools, suddenly, that the drama gives you tools to handle the corruption and lies of the world. I mean, it's a pretty tall order, okay? So I'm not going to say that this is always doable. But I do think that it's a, such a beautiful idea to think about how, I mean, basically what Barker is saying is that he's invoking the power of drama, right? So he's invoking the fact that it's not just this form, tragedy, that occurs on the sidelines and, you know, you read it in the textbook and so forth, but that actually... It has this power to just make you rise up out of your seat, <laughs> you know, and equip you with the tools you need to fight the world. Um, fight the world, to contend with the world, to wrestle with the world, etc. Um, it galvanizes you. And I think that galvanizing can happen in small ways, or it can you know, take you by the throat, right? The drama can take you by the throat and pull you and 
make you, right? Um, really gets to the core, sort of core of your being, right? Um, and I think that the moral arena in which drama is placed, uh, that it there actually is a force. The dramatic writing is a force in the world. Um, and it's not a ancillary to the world, but it's it has a kind of power and force, even if you're, my argument around this is, is even if you're uh, inventing a landscape that doesn't exist, right? That you're dealing in an alternate universe uh, where you're writing, that you're still tapping into that kind of forcefulness. Um, and there's something sort of beautiful about that. Um, in the 1960s, again, thinking about scholars and thinkers and theorists who have kind of studied tragedy in a big way. So George Steiner is another famous one from the 60s. He wrote a book, he wrote a book called The Death of Tragedy, uh, sort of outlining everything. And then... He's the, okay, maybe he's the first person to argue this, that he was looking at Shakespeare, interestingly, and saying that Shakespeare, his theory, Steiner's theory, fascinating, Steiner's theory was that in looking at Shakespeare and thinking about tragedy, that he thought that what Shakespeare was doing is actually rejecting tragedy. Um, that that Shakespeare as a writer was so, as I'm going to quote Steiner for a second, is so receptive to the plurality of diverse orders of experience that actually he wasn't doing tragedy the way the ancients before him had kind of put it forward in the world as a form. Steiner said that Shakespeare was muddying the form. So you can take this as you will, but it's an interesting idea that because um, Shakespeare has such a big brain, right? There was sort of a, one of the first writers to and I would include Cervantes, Cervantes, Shakespeare, and Calderón de la Barca, kind of writing the plurality, the plurality of experience rather than a singular, singular drive of experience. So what happens in the plurality of experience and its depiction is that... Uh, the dark and light are always next to each other. The tragic and comic are always next to each other. Um, one of the reasons I invoked Sarah Kane earlier in this lecture is that I think, and one of the reasons I mention her as, as a tragic writer, is that actually I think she, she goes back, as a writer, she goes back to Aeschylus and Sophocles toward a singular perspective and not 
a plural perspective, not a diverse plurality of experience, but actually a singular experience. It's one of the things that makes Sarah Kinzer work so interesting is that she she forced she was really was trying to do this. She was really trying to force an audience to go back and to sort of go back in time <laughs> and contend with a singularity of experience and reject. She's almost a rejection of Shakespeare. Um, though it's interesting because she was very influenced by Shakespeare. In fact, she she's kind of stealing from a lot of Shakespeare's work in her plays, but she's she's doing it through a different lens. Sort of worth thinking about it because I was in thinking about Steiner and in thinking about the death of tragedy. It's worth thinking about how we come to that idea. Um that it's sort of against hybridity. So so maybe that's a way to think about it. Like the that in that in tragedy we're not dealing with a hybrid form. That we're actually dealing with a singular form. Over time, it's become hybrid. You know, it's 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 had to, right? Historically. Um uh, Handmaid's Tale, right? So Handmaid's Tale is a tragedy. And it has a singularity of perspective. So like, you know, that's one example of a contemporary piece from fiction that works in a tragic realm. Um, there's a film I think you may be able to stream it called Fat City Fat City uh, and it's about people very very down on their luck battling it out in the world and it's also a tragedy it has a singularity of perspective um a force about it, kind of, it's broad strokes, but it's not the broad strokes of melodrama. It's the, the kind of broad, thick paint strokes uh, that are kind of putting themselves on the ground and say, here I am. Um, Lorraine Hansberry and LeBlanc one of the reasons, you know, it's funny because I think that one of my colleagues talks to me of LeBlanc as being an absurdist play. And I can see that argument. And I contend that that, that play is a tragedy. That play is in the tragic form. Uh, it has hybrid elements. But actually the, the worldview of it has that singularity of perspective and the tragedy of it is thorough. It cuts through the entire lens of that play. Uh, its moral power uh, is, is remarkable. Um, but yeah, Handmaid's Tale, I think, might be a good example uh, since it, it offers a 
a very tangible way of thinking about tragedy. Obviously, there are so many definitions of tragedy, and uh, thinking about the form is is tough. Uh, you know, I've given you some of the Aristotle. Uh, Hegel talks about uh, the idea of tragic collision. Right, so that instead of thinking about the tragic hero and their tragic flaw, Hegel, uh, the German philosopher, talked about uh, a conflict of ethical forces. I think that's why I think of LeBlanc, Lorraine Hasbury's play, as a tragedy, because it is about the conflict of ethical forces that are represented by characters, uh, but they also can be rendered by subject and object, and not only through character. Um, and, and there's this idea of the self-destructive and a kind of hostile world. Uh, the hostile world, the accidental circumstance. Um, the in ancient Indian drama also had tragedy, so I will say. So Sanskrit in Sanskrit theater, uh, in Sanskrit drama, ancient drama in India, this notion of um, the rasa. So the rasas that invoke pity, anger, disgust, and terror. Uh, could be seen as uh, thinking about tragedy, right? This is in earlier than Aristotle. So this is 200 uh, BC. Uh, or, but not using the word tragedy, in other words, but kind of starting to identify. There are modes melodically, so thinking again about song, there are melodically, there are structures that evoke pity, anger, disgust, and terror that provoke sadness and pathos. Um, so the Mahabharata, for example, the Indian epic, is related to tragedy. Um, and again, the idea of tragic force inside of it. And of course, the Mahabharata has been adapted uh, for the stage. Um, yeah, it's a it's a doozy of a form, let me tell you. Um, I think very, very hard to pull off. Um, uh, I think uh, difficult to do well. <laughs> um, but I think it might be interesting to think about that it's not always about an individual. But it can be just about ethical forces in conflict. Uh, that helps, I think, wrap our brains around the tragic. In ways that I think maybe are more interesting and less focused on a singular protagonist. Uh, although a singular protagonist can, can it be a great container, a vehicle for, a vehicle for illuminating 
the depth of, of human suffering. I mean, tragedy is um, uh, a very early form. Uh, so it's amazing that it's still with us, to be honest, and that we still think about it in literature uh, in ways that are that are exciting. Um, the other thing I would say about tragedy is that it's a form that It's a form in theater that, you know, I would say Lynn Nottage is ruined. Uh, it's interesting because I think Lynn Nottage is ruined. It is a tragedy, but it has elements of melodrama. <laughs> Again, it's hybrid. Uh, but of contemporary plays, I think one of the few contemporary plays that actually is trying to and it's interesting because she's invoking Brecht, right? So she's kind of invoking a writer, uh, Mother Courage and Her Children, that was kind of rejecting tragedy and yet found himself kind of writing a tragedy in Mother Courage and Her Children. And in Lynn's Ruined, which she takes the structure, a lot of the structure of Mother Courage kind of reworks it to write Ruined. Um, she's she's taking us back to that tragic impulse. Um, it's, a, it's a form that requires a great deal of stamina from a writer. And honestly, I think, you know, try to think in film, Magnolia comes to mind, although it has elements of melodrama. Melancholia, the Von Trier film, definitely a tragedy with other elements, but it's definitely a tragedy. In fact, for all of, you know, he's like very controversial and maybe at times misguided human being. But what I will say is that when he's at his peak, so I think, I think Melancholia is a masterwork. Uh, if you haven't seen it, check it out. Um, the, the singularity of the vision of that film and the commitment to that comes from a tragic impulse. Um, so I think a, a wonderful contemporary example of looking at that form. Um, i trying to think if there's a... I think one of the reasons it's hard for him to wrap your brain around too in contemporary terms is that it's it uh, it's a relentless form, usually, um, which is why I think it's interesting that Steiner in the 1960s said that Shakespeare probably wasn't a tragedian because he mixed it up too much, right? Uh, and I think the if you look at the the roots of tragedy is that there's a, a kind of devotion and a dedication to not letting other colors, in a sense, not letting other kind of colors in. You know, it's it's very it's very stark. Um, not simplified, but very stark, very austere. There's an that's the word. There's an austerity to tragedy, um, at its 
at its most uh, elevated. Uh, and I don't mean elevated in the sense of privilege or I mean elevated like the power of it hits you uh, as a spectator and that and from a writing perspective that it's written with such a force and relentlessness that it just kind of you know goes boom right um, with a full weight of that uh, there's a film called The White Ribbon by Michael Hanukkah that I think is a contemporary tragedy and has the austerity of, of like the ancients. Um, uh, yeah, kind of a, like that movie is remarkable, uh, The White Ribbon. It has moments that are absolutely startling. And it's a, it's a portrait of evil, that film. Uh, but I would say to counter that just slightly is that there's a there's a film that I that I think is incredibly prescient called Children of Men by Alfonso Cuarón. Uh, that I think is also a tragedy. Uh, it has other elements. It has sort of um, kind of elements of like what we call now the action genre in it. Thriller. It has elements of thriller and action in it. But at its heart, it's also a tragedy. It's also um, invoking a really singular vision. Um, with a wide look at ethical conflicts. Uh, so worth checking out if you don't know Children of Men. If you do, look at it again, I would say. Melancholia, Magnolia, uh, Children of Men. Uh, I'll mention There Will Be Blood, P.T. Anderson's film, because I think it's often talked about as a tragic, as a, a tragic film. I think the first hour of that film uh, approaches tragedy. And I think then it, then it becomes melodrama in the second half. Uh, pretty, almost, almost exclusively. So I think that the, the ground under that film structurally shifts, kind of really splits itself down the middle. Uh, and though I think that it wants to be a tragedy, I think that it actually, <laughs> I think it's trying to do that. Uh, uh, but it, but it, it sort of, it sort of does a strange thing in the second half of the film where it kind of descends into melodrama. And I think using some of the wonderful elements of melodrama, but it, but it kind of doesn't, it doesn't stay the course with the, with the game plan that it sets up earlier. So it's a, it's an interesting example of like where, where the tragic mode uh, goes awry a little bit. Uh, ruined. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of other plays that, that actually work in the tragic mode that are not like adaptations from the Greeks. Um, 
it's a difficult, difficult mode to pull off. Uh, yeah, but it's but I think one worth striving for. Uh, I think it's also because it's a difficult mode. I think that it's often. Um, producers don't want to take it on. <laughs> you know, it's like a, a mode that people are afraid of. Um, but, uh, which is a shame, uh, I think. So, so, but anyway, uh, think about tragedy uh, and thinking about how it can work. Um, there are many ways it can work. Uh, there's some contemporary plays. I was thinking also about um, uh, James's Kill Move Paradise. I think that play, Kill, if you don't know it, Kill Move Paradise, um, which is about uh, the death of of black men uh, due to police brutality um, approaches, I think, elements of tragedy. It's, it's essentially an absurdist play in its form. So I think it, it kind of doesn't, it doesn't take the tragic route, even though the subject matter certainly is. Um, Passover, Antoinette Noander's play Uh, is is also an absurdist play, uh, form wise, that approaches tragedy. So so again, there are some there are some examples uh, in the world of contemporary works that are either approaching tragedy or meeting it head on or. Um, Or, or at least uh, uh, courting it, courting it as a form. Uh, and like I said, also in film. I certainly haven't seen uh, on TV. I know we'll talk about Breaking Bad, but I think Breaking Bad has elements of tragedy. I don't think it's it's tragedy in its purest form. I think it's actually a blend of melodrama and tragedy. And so I think that there's an interesting, uh, there's just stuff to look at in terms of form where where things don't kind of, you know, I, would, I will mention one thing, which is horror films sometimes, not all, but sometimes approach tragedy, sometimes have that kind of, almost clarity of vision uh, around them. Um, but a lot of horror, uh, that genre, a lot of horror lives within melodrama. So, so it's, a, it's a tricky form to bring up uh, because of that. Uh, but anyway, I'm wrestling with it myself. Uh, always have, and uh, I'm... Uh, I think that as a writer, I, uh, the scale of tragedy um, 
and its ferociousness, I think, uh, is worth aiming for. It's, it's pretty daunting, though, but it's worth aiming for. Uh, but I'm glad that, that so many writers in many countries over the years uh, keep uh, encountering the form and wanting to wrestle it to the ground <laughs> and figure it out. Because uh, it's one of the oldest forms of dramatic writing. Uh, but thinking about it as goat song, thinking about it as something that occurs after and through sacrifice is, is kind of a great way in to thinking about tragedy. So, so that's, the, that's, the little, that's the little spiel on tragedy for today. Thanks for listening.